Ah, oh, it's you. Of all people, it's you. It's been quite some time since our paths crossed. I thought I'd bump into you now the evenings are growing darker. One feels more alive in the dark somehow, don't you think? I knew you'd understand. This is my train leaving now. You're welcome to join me in my carriage if you're going the same way. There's nothing quite so evocative as an empty train carriage at night. Of course, here in Ireland, trains do have their sinister side as well. I take it that's what you want to hear about. Of course it is. Well, let's see. I'm working from memory, of course. I can hardly carry my library with me. Let's see, let's see. Ah, we're off. Oh, I, I do have a good one, actually. One I read up on just recently. This one dates from November of 1908. And it happened, according to the newspapers at the time, between Newcastle and Galway City on the old Clifton to Galway railway line. Now, it was a Saturday night and two young lads were making their way from Newcastle into Galway, using the railway tracks as a shortcut. When they came to a place called Glanville, the two youngsters got the fright of their lives. Afterwards, they could agree on two things. That the dark object which appeared floating in front of them had a vaguely human shape. And also, that it was at least eight feet tall. Now, these two unfortunate young men were not the first to witness this apparition. In fact, the sightings began the previous winter, in 1907, but they'd become the talk of the town in the winter of 1908. And all the reports were remarkably similar. They all described a grey or black shape, eight to nine feet tall, and tapering towards the top. It was typically seen walking the viaduct, if, if walking is the word along the Corrib as far as Newcastle, where it disappeared, sometimes by leaping into the dark waters of the river. A brave mob of students had ventured towards its typical route one midnight, only for the student delegated to speak to the thing to instantly lose his nerve upon seeing it drift towards him. Back to our youngsters and their ill-advised shortcut along the tracks. As they watched in dumb horror, the shape glided through the blackness of the night, getting closer and closer to the two petrified lads until it was almost on top of them. At which point, it simply disappeared. The boys breathed a sigh of relief, laughed the raucous laugh of the truly terrified, and pressed on into the night only for the object to reappear 40 yards further down the track. This time it floated away in the direction of Loch Corrib before disappearing again. The two young men pulled themselves together and continued their journey into Galway, their shortcut having turned into the longest night of their lives. When they reached the city at last, Saturday night was in full swing. The roar of conviviality from the pubs, licensed and unlicensed, took their minds off their horrifying ordeal, 
but they were still sufficiently aghast at what they'd seen to tell their friends. And their friends did what any group of young men, high as kites on Saturday night bravado, would do in the same circumstances. They tooled up with sticks, shotguns and revolvers, and ventured out into the night to forcibly lay the ghost. Now it should be noted that the young men had enough presence of mind to load their weapons with blanks, presumably with one another's safety in mind. But the six of them had assembled a formidable arsenal as they moved cautiously along the railway tracks, their nervous banter dying away in the cold November air. They might have ventured out for a story to tell in the pub afterwards, a tale that would grow legs on the journey home. What they in fact got was an experience none of them would ever want to repeat because within just a few short minutes of their arrival, the looming black shape appeared, just as described. Struck by terror, one of the young men raised his revolver, pointed it at the apparition, and immediately saw it drop from his hands onto the railway tracks, swiftly followed by the young man himself, who collapsed like a sack of potatoes on the ground. As the others rushed to his aid, the giant black shape simply disappeared from view. Its victim, if such he was, lay unconscious on the ground. With great difficulty his friends carried him back along the track into Galway and it was some hours before he regained consciousness under the care of a doctor. That marked the end of his adventures in ghost hunting along the Corrib, but it was far from the end of the story. Safety in numbers was again the watchword on the Monday night, when an even larger band of students roved out to confront the spectre. On this occasion, however, all was silent along the tracks except for the plaintive whistle of the freight train making its way to Clifton in the night. That story, that night, that winter of terror, is long forgotten now. In fact, you may be the first one to have heard it anew for almost a hundred years. Those intrepid ghost-hunting students are themselves ghosts of memory now. Even the railway viaduct is long gone pulled down in the 1930s. But what of the apparition? What of that inexplicable, towering dark shape witnessed by numerous Galwegians in 1908, who all described the exact same thing? What coaxed it out of the dark, sullen waters of the Corrib? Where is it now? And what could coax it out again? That's single, no return. Yes, indeed. Thank you. There he goes. What a strange little man. Don't you think he looks like... Well, no. Never mind. Now let's go north for our next story. The little town of Straban sits at the foot of the mountains, perched right on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. 
The train hasn't run there since the mid-1960s. Today, the foundations of the old station lie beneath a supermarket car park on Branch Road. But back in 1913, Strabane, like most towns and villages in Ireland, was another bright pinhead on a railway network which spread throughout the entire country. And in October of that year, something happened at Straban train station which defies explanation to this day. This was, by some distance, one of the best attested sightings in Ireland. All the witnesses were vouched for as sensible, hard-headed working men, and their story began like this. On a crisp autumn night, not long before Halloween, three engine cleaners set to work in the sheds of the County Donegal Railway Company at Straban train station, County Tyrone. They wouldn't have been short of conversation. The Irish Home Rule Act was struggling through Parliament at Westminster, although, in truth, the three lads may have preferred to avoid politics. One was an Anglican, one was a Presbyterian, and the other was a Catholic. Alternatively, they could have spoken about the troubles down south, in Dublin, where the workers of the city were engaged in a life-or-death struggle with their employers in the great Dublin lockout of 1913. In any case, the conversation lulled as midnight came and went, and the three men, John Pinkerton, Michael Madden and Fred Oliphant, kept at their tedious work of scrubbing the smoke-stained engines. But if they were longing for excitement, something to break up the drudgery of the night, well, they ought to have been more careful what they wished for. As this was no creeping visitation from a half-glimpsed shadow. At half-past midnight, something started hammering on the doors of the shed. All the doors at once. These thumps were accompanied by unearthly screams which surrounded the building on all sides. Clumping together for safety, the three engine cleaners ran to the nearest door and bravely pulled it open. The figure they saw was, according to Pinkerton, the form of a man of heavy build and thin legs, floating just off the ground. As the three men screamed in fright, the watchman and the signalman raced into the shed to investigate. The signalman dashed at the screeching figure with a crowbar, but couldn't lay a glove on it despite his frantic attempts. Terrified, the three cleaners climbed onto the roof of the engine and watched the figure hover around the shed for two whole hours. There was no imagination on our part, Pinkerton told the papers afterwards. It was moonlight, and we saw it plainly. With great reluctance, the men returned to work the next day. With shattered nerves, they set about their tedious work in tense, deathly silence. At 1.30am, that silence was shattered. The entity, or whatever it was, appeared again, screeching and howling. Oliphant approached to within two yards, then immediately collapsed as the figure shrieked in his face. 
after picking him off the ground. Pinkerton, fearing unemployment more than a ghost, tried to concentrate on his work. But the figure appeared in front of him as well, and stared into his face. He blacked out, fell against the engine. Seven of us saw it this time, Pinkerton told the Straban Chronicle. Our clothes and everything in the shed were tossed and thrown about. With a bravery born of panic, the men chased the figure around the shed, throwing everything they could lay their hands on at it, but to no avail. The figure even flitted out of the shed and ran up and down the ladder leading to the water tank outside, disappearing into the water repeatedly. One of the men did manage to land a lucky blow with a lump of coal, whereupon the figure briefly took on the distinct form of a man. This second manifestation ended when the figure, which had run in and around and under the engine, disappeared through the window, never came back. But it left its mark on the three engine cleaners. A reporter described Pinkerton as looking like a man who had gone through some terrible ordeal. Oliphant admitted it was hard to keep working there, but added grimly, I have my time almost served, so I will finish it. Now, if you think these three gentlemen sound like grizzled veterans of the railway, you'd be wrong. Pinkerton, Oliphant and Madden were each just 16 years old. This was no youthful prank. Locals vouched for the three young men as level-headed and responsible, and of course other employees had seen the entity too. Mr. Lavery, the station master, was worried enough to call the police, and two RIC constables duly laid in wait for the entity. Their wait was in vain. It was never seen again. What had prompted its appearance? There were the usual local stories about unsolved murders on the site of the railway sheds. Other locals felt the figure was a bad omen, warning of some future disaster on the Donegal line. It should be noted that Dickens' story, The Signalman, in which a terrible apparition in a signal box betokens imminent disaster, was already almost 50 years old at this time, which perhaps accounts for that theory. But there were no major accidents recorded on the Donegal line in subsequent years. If the bell tolled for anyone, it was for young John Pinkerton himself. Within a year, another terrifying spectre would appear in his life, the shadow of war. With the outbreak of the First World War, less than a year after the events at Straban, Pinkerton signed up to serve as a private with the Inniskillen Fusiliers. On August 16th, 1917, a German bomb, bullet or bayonet ended his life at the Battle of Langemark. He was, by then, just 20 years old. And perhaps the secret of the railway terror of 1913 lies buried with him in Flanders Fields. Yes, please.
just one sugar, please. And for you? That's quite alright, keep the change. Now, have you ever heard of Sir Shane Leslie? He was of the famous Leslie family who owned the castle in County Monaghan. Still do, in fact. Came over in the 17th century, bishops and baronets and all that. Famous eccentrics among them. Sir Shane was quite the eccentric himself in that he became an Irish nationalist. Converted to Catholicism, stood for the Irish party in the 1918 elections. And a first cousin of Churchill himself, this fellow. Anyway, in, in later life, Leslie became something of a connoisseur of the ghost story. But he would only admit to one experience of his own. And it happened like this. One evening, Sir Shane found himself standing alone on the platform of a Paris train station, waiting to board the nighttime express to Cannes. As he waited, he caught sight of a strange mournful-looking lady, dressed all in black at the end of the platform. To get a better look, he strolled casually down the platform until they were almost face to face. She turned her head towards him slowly, and equally slowly, intoned the words, Il faut changer de train. Confused, Sir Shane looked towards the train, waiting on the platform. Why would he change to the slower train? What was wrong with the express? Nothing as far as he could see. When he turned back to inquire, the lady was gone. Suddenly, Sir Shane was seized by an awful sense of imminent doom. He wasn't a superstitious man, but the feeling was too intense to ignore. Moments later, he was climbing aboard the slow train to Cannes and watching the express pull out of the station. The journey south to the Riviera was long and slow, and when Sir Shane stepped off the train at Gare de Cannes, he'd almost forgotten about the Lady in Black. That was until he deciphered the hubbub among the staff on the platform. Last night's Riviera Express to Cannes now lay mangled along with many of its passengers somewhere outside Lyon. That one got to you, did it? Well, I shouldn't worry too much. Train crashes are rare nowadays, and this particular train has never crashed. It's, uh, well, less said the better, perhaps. It's by no means unheard of for railway apparitions to protect or even save life and limb in Ireland. In 1966, gatekeeper William Dundon reported that kids from the local council estates had stopped playing on the cement branch crossroads in Balnacurra Weston in Limerick after a ghostly figure was seen walking the line. Joseph Kirkland of Prospect was the first witness. He seemed to be waving his hands as if to tell me to get off the line. I looked again, and he was gone, said Joseph. Joseph evidently took the figure's counsel and stayed off the tracks because he lived until just a few years ago. You know, 
Perhaps trains and train stations attract myths and legends, and who knows, even ghosts? For much the same reasons as bridges used to do in times past. They're transitory places, nether worlds, between coming and going, between home and exile, between possibility and reality. But you know, it's not just the stations or the trains or the tracks that are troubled by the uncanny. Sometimes the strangeness wafts across the railway to the surrounding area. Go to any modestly sized town in Ireland and you'll find a street named Railway Terrace or Railway Cottages or Railway Road. Very often you'll also find that the last train has long since departed, sometime in the 1950s or even earlier. But its memory lingers on in the rows of neat bungalows arrayed alongside the vanished tracks. And in one such cottage, in the town of Oma, County Tyrone, lived a woman described as the most kindly old woman I ever met by the recounter of our next tale, a certain Mr. Podrick McCarney. By the 1970s, McCarney had lived most of his life in Bangor, in Carnarfonshire, North Wales. But his memories of his hometown of Oma in the early 20th centuries remained strong and vivid, and with stories as extraordinary as this one, it's no wonder. This is one of the strangest tales I've ever heard recounted as a true story, but Untusil McCarthy insists that it happened exactly as he described. So let's stick to the facts as he recalled them in the mid-1970s. There lived in a small cottage on the Dromore Road, not far from Oma train station, an old woman known for the neatness of her home and her kindness to strangers and small children, none of whom ever passed back over her threshold without some sugary treat or other to brighten their day. And I believe that Podrick may have been one of them. In fact, she would have been loved by one and all had her kindness ended there, but it didn't, because her largesse also extended to those most despised of God's creatures, the dreaded rat. She was known for feeding the water rats that swarmed in the open fields around her cottage, and swarmed in greater numbers the more they were fed. In time, this old lady came to that end which comes to us all, and her mortal remains were laid out in a hearse and brought on their final journey to the cemetery. And following the hearse was a small cortege of friends and family, and an army of several thousand water rats. The rats followed the cortege until it reached a point where the road was crossed by a small stream with no bridge or footbridge across. They made no effort to follow the cortege as it forded the stream. Instead, this vast swarm of rats lined up along the bank and began what Podrick described as an ulagon, a mournful keening, which could still be heard from the graveside, as the kindly old lady was lowered to her eternal rest, at which point 
the rats ceased their whimpering, went their separate ways, and never troubled the Jamor Road again. A remarkable man, Mr. McCarney, a great repository of Tyrone folklore. He deserves to be remembered. Well now, my friend, if I'm not mistaken, your journey is nearing its end. How about one more tale before you have to brave the cold, dark night again? This one is, well, not quite so well attested as the others. Let's call it a story and leave it at that. Yes, this is a story that's told by a certain type of person in a certain part of Monster, and it originates, or so it's said, from a patient in a mental institution in Limerick, sometime in the 1960s. Let me tell it to you exactly as it was related to me. Once upon a time, as these things go, a man, Wilshaw was his name, very old-fashioned name then, and I suppose even more so now, hauled himself up into the carriage of the 1710 train from Houston Station to Cork. He was heading to his uncle's house in County Clare and looking forward to the visit. His uncle was a sailor, you see, and always had a good yarn to spin. It was winter and the train soon left the lights of the city behind. There was nothing to see out the windows but an inky black void, except when the train pulled into the stations along the way, little cheery oases of pale light in the darkness. As the train stopped at Newbridge, Wilshaw scanned the faces of the passengers on the platform, the blonde-headed child asleep on its mother's shoulder, the elderly couple struggling with their luggage, the distinguished-looking gentleman with the newspaper tucked under his arm, the young lady in the duffel coat with a face full of hope, the tall man on the edge of the platform. The tall man on the edge of the platform, staring through the window, straight at Wilshaw, with wild, leering eyes. He was wearing a battered black hat, with long strands of straight white hair shooting down beneath it. His teeth were crooked but pearly white, and his skin was, well, stretched tight across his face like a drum, and his eyes, a pale, pale grey, were staring right through Wilshaw. And as the guard blew his whistle, the man began to walk slowly towards the carriage without once taking his eyes off Wilshaw. The man raised a bony finger and began to trace something on the frosty window. Wilshaw, for some reason, was too terrified to move, too terrified to tear his eyes away. Somehow, through the window pane, he could hear the dull shuffle of the man's feet as he slowly stepped back along the platform, into the shadows, and out of sight. Wilshaw pulled his gaze away from the window, and as the train left the station far behind, he tried to forget about what he'd seen, go back to his newspaper, but his mind kept returning to the staring man on the platform. A few moments later, the ticket inspector wandered into the carriage, a bluff, jovial man who, being bluff and jovial, broke thick silence of the night and 
little waves of conversation, pleasantries, half-jokes answered by half-chuckles, rippled down the carriage with him until the last ticket was checked and punched, the inspector moved on, and silence settled over the carriage once more, leaving Will Shaw with his thoughts. As the train pulled into Port Leisha, Wilshaw carefully scanned the faces of the waiting passengers, but the tall man with the pale blue eyes was nowhere to be seen. He relaxed back into his chair, dragged on a cigarette and scanned his newspaper. By the time the train reached Thurless, he'd almost put the incident out of his mind, and as the stations shot by in the night, his thoughts turned to what was awaiting him in his uncle's house in County Clare. A warm welcome, a warm meal, and a warm bed. And so, as the train began to chug into Limerick Junction, where Will Shaw would have to catch his connection to Ennis, he was in good spirits. He tucked on his hat, pulled his suitcase onto the platform, and turned up his collar against the cold night. When Wilshaw noticed that he was the only passenger stepping off at Limerick Junction, that sense of unease began to return. There was no guard on the lonely platform, nothing for miles around but windswept fields. Wilshaw fumbled in his pocket for his matches, and as he lit his woodbine, he saw, for the first time, the message that the man had traced on the window with his bony finger. Etched into the frost in impeccable handwriting were six words. Don't get off at Limerick Junction. And as the train sped away and his match sputtered and failed, Wilshaw got a brief glimpse of a face reflecting in the window heard the slow, slow shuffle of feet sliding up the platform. Don't look so alarmed, my friend. It's just a story. An urban legend, you'd say, if it wasn't set on a lonely station platform in the middle of the country. Rather like the one we're pulling into now. Your stop, I believe. Me? No, I'm staying on right until the end of the line. Well, it looks like it's just you who's getting off. Well, I'm sure your connection will be along soon. Good night, my friend, and until next we meet, do take care.